This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. There may be an appetite in Congress at long last for reigning in the power of the president in making war. Cato's Gene Healy and John Glazer discuss the whys and hows of repealing specific authorities granted to the White House after 9-11 that have been on the books for far too long. There seems to be some movement on ending the AUMFs that have we, we've had on the books for nearly 20 years. Uh, I spoke with Ro Khanna recently, and he seemed amenable to the notion that if, uh, if Joe Biden himself doesn't uh, at least end U.S. involvement in the war in Afghanistan within the year that he owns it. So what do you guys think? Yeah, there actually seems to be some momentum on the Hill for repealing old authorizations for the use of military force. Uh, Last week, uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee's uh, measure to repeal the uh, Iraq War uh, AUMF uh, passed out of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. There's a a similar bill in the Senate, uh, Senators Tim Kaine and and Todd Young. Uh, to repeal the 2002 AUMF and the 1991 Gulf War AUMF. There's another measure in the House uh, to repeal the 2002, 1991, and uh, Eisenhower-era 1957 AUMF, uh, all of which is good. There's also, uh, the last week, there were dueling hearings in the House Rules Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee on a broader war powers reform. So it's almost like the some folks up there on the Hill are, are getting interested in doing their jobs and uh, actually authorizing uh, the wars that America fights, actually uh, taking control over, uh, over you know, reclaiming congressional war powers is probably the most important job uh, that uh, congressmen and women can have. John? Well, I guess you asked, does he own the war in Afghanistan uh, if he decides to extend past the May 1st deadline? And I think, yes, uh, you know, this is now the fourth president. We've had both Democrats and Republicans fighting this war. And um, the 2001 AUMF continues to authorize that kind of policy. But of course, the strategy is all wrong. It's a war that we lost a long time ago. Um, and, you know, all the, it's a strange thing actually, because on the one hand, if you look at the region, it definitely, there's evidence of U.S. wars. We are fighting a lot of wars, and it's important not to define that down. On the other hand, from the American perspective, we're not really engaged in a war as traditionally defined. It's a kind of constant policing action of low-intensity violence across a number of countries with the justification that uh, we need to keep ourselves safe from terrorism. Uh, and I think the uh, the fundamentals of that equation have been scrutinized for a long time over the past 20 years, and they're very, very weak, and yet policy continues unabated. How likely are we to get an end to, at the very least, the 2002 uh, authorization for the use of military force? And what does that mean practically if that repeal occurs? I think it's, well... Repeal of the 2002 AUMF uh, looks more likely than not, I would say. And that's good. It's good to uh, to get rid of old 
military authorizations. They sort of lie around like, uh, as invitations to presidential mischief. And uh, so I don't want to dismiss this move. I think you have to start somewhere. But uh, these are the low-hanging, something like the uh, Iraq War Resolution, the 2002 resolution passed during the George W. Bush administration uh, in order to take out Saddam Hussein. Uh, th- these are the low-hanging fruit. This is, a, this is something that's easy to do. And I've actually seen some congressmen who support this uh, point out that, uh, well, this doesn't affect any ongoing operations, as if that's a, a, a feature, not a bug. Uh, I think the, the problem is, uh, as long as we're forward deployed in bad neighborhoods, that there will always be an excuse uh, and a risk of stumbling into a wider war. We saw with uh, uh, Joe Biden's inaugural airstrikes in Syria last month, uh, they weren't justified. Uh, the the uh, legal justification for them was not an old AUMF. Uh, uh, you know, our presence in Iraq and Syria is uh, rationalized under the 2001 post 9-11 uh, authorization. Uh, but the the legal justification that President Biden cited for his airstrikes on February 25th was uh, Article 2 of the Constitution, executive power, commander in chief. Uh, and the problem is, as long as you, as long as we are, as long as we have forces to, in a position in uh, the Middle East to get shot at, uh, that sort of justification is always, we can debate how broad the president's defensive powers under Article 2 are, but there's a practical matter uh, you know, the president is not go is going to authorize U.S. forces to hit back uh, when when they're shot at, and uh, as long as we are positioned in this way, where we don't need to be, where there's no compelling national security justification, we're always at the risk of mission creep and stumbling into a wider war. It it is sort of odd to think about uh, an AUMF as the underlying authority. That allows a president to use arguable constitutional power. It is it is a bit twisted, and uh, the the I think this is a good example of how contorted our view of national security threats have become in this in this time period. I mean, we've begun to kind of defend the outer edges of a kind of informal empire as if it's our own territory. Um, so we, if you take for granted that we have to be forward deployed in the Middle East and uh, deployed in active hostilities in a number of countries, and then those forces come under fire from local militants, we, we aren't protecting U.S. national security. We need to sort of evaluate the extent to which those foreign threats actually threaten U.S. territory and U.S. citizens here at home. The threat can't be that our forward deployed forces in their neighborhood are coming under fire after being deployed there uh, under violent pretenses. Um, Gene mentioned mission creep. I think we're well beyond mission creep. You know, mission creep, the creep turned into a gallop about 15 years ago. And, you know, so any kind of Rip Van Winkle uh, character today that's worried about mission creep should wake up that, to the fact that it's actually happened. We're engaged in violence across the region, targeting various militant groups, some that arose long after 9-11, others that are enemies with al-Qaeda, 
others that have disbanded and spread around the region and joined other groups, some of which we target, some of which we don't. I mean, at this point, the mission has become lost and replaced, as I said, by a kind of permanent state of low intensity war without national boundaries, without a defined enemy, without a specified objective that's achievable, and particularly relevant here, without proper legal authorization. That has all kinds of legal, uh, all kinds of implications, not just for our foreign policy, but for the health of our republic. So what of the argument then that the U.S. needs to have a military presence in the Middle East? And to the extent that, that you have any sympathy for that view of all, at all, what should that look like? Well, I think we have some interests in the Middle East. It's just that they're not so important and so vital as they're often considered in, in uh, U.S. politics. And it's also the case that the means that we uh, employ in order to pursue and secure those interests uh, are often counterproductive. So, I mean, uh, do we need to be in the Middle East to protect the free flow of oil? Uh, I really don't think so. Um, the region's energy resources are not nearly as vulnerable as is often claimed, and our military presence, as I said, has kind of been counterproductive to stability in the region and making sure that this global public good, as it's often described, gets to the market. Um, if you look at since 1945, you know, for a while, uh, Great Britain had a kind of hegemonic force, a, a pacifying forward deployment in the region supposed to protect the free flow of oil. And then in the 70s, there was, you know, very little outside forces there. Uh, after 1980, the United States started to build up its own presence. And then we had a major presence, of course, from 1991 uh, to 2003, and we're, we're still there with about 60,000 troops. With all this variation in a kind of hegemonic overseas presence in the Middle East, there hasn't been much variation in the supply of oil or the availability of it. And the modern world is much more capable of dealing with supply shocks should they occur. Uh, and so, you know, the, the oil question, I just don't think we need to be there. Do we need to be there in order to defend ourselves from terrorism? I really don't think so. I kind of mentioned this before. It's important here to maybe talk about the scope, you know, of, of our presence in the greater Middle East. We are in active military hostilities in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, uh, Nigeria, Mali, Kenya. I mean, it goes on and on and on. There's a couple of countries that we have a train and assist program where we work with their security forces to target militants. And sometimes our troops get involved in active hostilities there. That's Niger and Tunisia. So, I mean, we are we are very, very overcommitted and uh, meddling in a lot of different countries under a lot of different pretenses, although terrorism is kind of the overweening one. And it's just not a significant enough threat for us to have to be forward deployed and chasing these ghosts all over the region. Occasionally, when uh, some U.S. troops get killed, uh, as uh, happened in Niger a few years ago, earlier on, early in the Trump ad administration, Congress is a, not just the American public, but Congress is actually uh, surprised. Uh, you know, Lindsey Graham and some others uh, around the time four uh, soldiers got killed in Niger sort of professed surprise that we that we were over there. Uh, and uh, you know, this is a core constitutional responsibility of Congress, and particularly uh, under the two thousand and one AUMF, the uh, 
resolution, the authorization that was passed three days after 9-11, uh, essentially, essentially said, you know, go get the guys who did Al-Qaeda and anybody who helped them out. That uh, has under, uh, well, now under a fourth president, uh, three presidents in a row at least, uh, expanded that into a blank check for uh, low-level war, uh, you know, in six or seven countries at any given time. Uh, but I, I think people are uh, on the Hill, uh, on both sides of the aisle, uh, more people are awake to this danger than, than had been uh, in previous years. But I think there's also a, another danger uh, as we move towards repealing old uh, authorizations for the use of military forces, that the mantra is that you repeal and replace the 2001 authorization for the use of military force. And uh, that, I think, is uh, going to be a source of danger. The, the risk is that we're going to restart the clock on the forever war. We're not going to be winding it down that we'll pass a new uh, authorization after 20 years that, that uh, delegates still more authority to the president to uh, engage in these low-level operations that have the risk of becoming more intensive operations. So uh, Joe Biden has signaled some willingness to, uh, as you made mention, uh, replace uh, the 2001 AUMF. When I asked Rokana about this, he hemmed and hawed a little bit and then said he would be fine with uh, repealing and not replacing, which is what uh, you two have advocated both together and separately. Why is there, I guess, what's the risk, uh, relative risks of doing one or the other? Well, the phrase Joe Biden used uh, was the for, for a replacement was the, uh, a narrow and specific framework. Uh, it, uh, for fourth force authorization in a in a uh, a replacement AUMF, and I think I could come up with, and others have come up with something that was that would be narrow, narrowly tailored, and specific enough uh, that it might be an improvement. But uh, I don't think Joe Biden is going to like it very much, and uh, I wonder. Uh, you know, I, I have my doubts about whether it could could pass. I mean, what you would want if you were going to replace the 2001 AUMF, uh, you would want a hard sunset, uh, the, the year or two, three at the outset, uh, after which all the authorities expire. You would want to deal with uh, the groups that have been uh, uh, encompassed in that, groups like Al-Shabaab in Somalia, and uh, you would want to... Uh, you know, there are any number of them that uh, that really present no national security risk to the United States at all. Uh, you would not want to grandfather those in, uh, and you would want uh, there's this concept of associated forces that has led to the expansion of the 2001 AUMF. Um, you know, forces that are connected in some way, uh, however tangentially or uh, fantastically to to the original al-qaeda um that that phrase associated forces doesn't appear anywhere in the uh in the in the language of the 2001 aumf if you were going to replace it i think you would want 
to explicitly bar this concept of associated forces. If the if the president wants to uh, expand uh, the war, add to the enemies list a new group that's not authorized, uh, he has to go get separate authorization for it. Um, but the likelihood of that uh, of uh, you know, both houses of Congress and the president agreeing to the kinds of narrow and specific restrictions that that you would want to avoid further expansion uh, of the war, um, you know, makes it much more likely that uh, uh, repeal and and don't replace is, is the better option. Um, you know, as John can tell you, uh, the, there are uh, very few direct security threats that uh, that justify uh, ongoing counterterrorism, op- military counterterrorism operations, and uh, you know you could repeal the 2001 AUMF and replace it with nothing, but and uh, have that debate start from. Uh, Start from nothing and have the president and uh, uh, you know members in Congress who support ongoing operations make the case for it. Uh, but I again, I think the danger of starting with we're going to have a replacement at UMF that grandfathers in a lot of the groups we're at war with now um, and possibly uh, you know extends the president's authority indefinitely. Uh, I think is not worth the candle. I don't think it's something we should try to implement. Yeah, I think we're back to our distorted perception of threat here. So the the logic is we need to provide the executive with an open-ended permission slip to engage in military activity to thwart terrorism over in the Middle East and North Africa. Um, But we can't identify a specific or imminent threat to our national security in order to justify that. So it's it's easier just to, when it comes up, the president will have this opportunity. And that contorts the entire constitutional system. And it's also indicative of the fact that we can't seem to distinguish between roving militants half a world away with mostly local concerns um, and a direct threat to the United States. You know, 9-11 was a, such a traumatic event that basically terrorism as a bu- buzzword terrifies both Americans and policymakers into adopting policies that are not only at odds with our constitutional system, but uh, are contrary to our interests. If you just consider the amount of blood and treasure that we've expended in the Middle East over the past few decades, and then try to consider what kind of return on our, our, on our investment have we actually received? I don't think you'll come up with a positive answer. Um, we know now, I think, that a president will not resolve uh, the GWAT, the global war on terrorism, uh, on their own. They won't say, okay, we've won. You know why? Because there's barely any specific achievable mission mentioned. Uh, we don't know who the enemy is that we must defeat, and then we can come home. And without that end, the, pres- the executive, I think, will continue to perpetuate these conflicts so long as they have the legal authorization. And Gene put it a little more nicely, but uh, as he said, I am happy that the old and unused AUMFs are about to be repealed or possibly about to be repealed. But I think the reason that they're about to be repealed is because they will have no effect 
on current operations. And so what we really need to do is focus on this 2001 authorization, which enables the executive branch to engage in constant, permanent, perpetual warfare for bad strategic reasons and bad national security reasons. And the president, uh, if you're the president or a member of Congress who would like to in, in continue conflict or engage in new conflicts, uh, you're kind of out of the hot seat uh, as, as long as these are on the books. You don't have to offer up specific justifications. No, you, you don't even have to be paying attention to uh, the fact that they're going on. I mean, I've heard these, uh, these operations referred to as mowing the lawn, playing whack-a-mole with jihadists that have no capability uh, of threatening Americans. And any replacement for the 2001 AUMF that retains that basic framework is a mistake. Gene Healy is a vice president at the Cato Institute. John Glazer directs foreign policy studies at Cato. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.